Welcome into the Diamond Vols podcast. I am Ben McKee, not joined by Eric Kane on this Wednesday. Eric is on a well-deserved vacation and a much-needed vacation, I might add, as you are well aware if you listened to the last edition of the Diamond Vols podcast. Riding solo today and still have plenty to discuss will probably be a little bit of a shorter pod since Eric's not here to debate every single thing I say. I know it's such a great thing that Eric's not here today. I kid, I kid. But again, plenty to discuss as Tennessee prepares to head north up to Lexington to face Kentucky in a three-game series. The first Thursday, Friday, Saturday series of the season for Tennessee. That's the way it's going to be from here on out. They'll travel to Kentucky this weekend. They'll return home to face a top 25 Georgia team next week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then they'll end the regular season the following week when they travel to Mississippi State for the last of three straight Thursday, Friday, Saturday series. And hard to believe that three weeks from today, Tennessee and myself will be in Hoover getting underway in the SEC tournament. Tennessee will, without a doubt, be a top four seed. They'll be the number one overall seed in the SEC tournament. So uh, the tournament technically begins on Tuesday, but Tennessee will not play until Wednesday because they do have that first day bye. So three weeks from this Wednesday, Tennessee will be in Hoover kickstarting its postseason run. But before they do that, they do have some more games remaining obviously in the regular season and the latest win for the Vols was on Tuesday night at Lindsey Nelson Stadium against Alabama A&M and I am going to give a quick shout out to the Alabama A&M Bulldogs because they are located 10 minutes 15 minutes from where I went to high school and where my parents still live there in good old Huntsville Alabama Shout out to Jason Swain. <laughs> he, he grew up literally two minutes from Alabama A&M. And, and shame on Jason for spurning the the hometown school. I mean, just so disrespectful by Swain to choose to co-play in the SEC and not stay home and play at good old Alabama A&M. I mean, just the, the disrespect is just unbelievable. And, and they're an HBCU as well. You, you would think Swain would have more respect for an HBCU, but here we are, just him disrespecting the school that he grew up two minutes away from. Shame on him. Be sure and tweet at him and shame him for uh, just just giving the middle finger to the to the local HBCU. He, he should have more class than that, but... That's a different conversation for a different day. Also, just right around the corner from Jordan Beck, who went to Hazel Green High School in Hazel Green, Alabama, as I am sure most of you all are familiar with. And like Jordan did against Alabama early last month, like Jordan did against Auburn <laughs> just this past weekend, he did not take it easy on the home state team, or uh, in in this case, the, the hometown team as in order to get into Hazel Green, Alabama, you have to pass Alabama A&M. And, uh, well, Jordan didn't take too long before going bombs away on the Bulldogs. He, he was not very kind to them whatsoever, hitting a three-run home run there in the first inning. And it, it was a very impressive home run as he caught it off the end of the bat, didn't even hit it all that well, but still managed to, to hit it over the fence there in the first inning, maybe was aided by some wind. 
but I think it was 99% Jordan Beck strength, which, which we have seen quite often this year, and uh, he did it yet again on Tuesday night as Tennessee beat Alabama A&M 14-1. There, there were two major storylines. A, Chase Dolander returned, and we'll talk about that one second. But the other storyline is that Tennessee set the program record for home runs in a season with 108 home runs. Tennessee hit five home runs on the night. The fourth one by Ethan Payne, a infielder for the Vols, who uh, it, it was his first career home run for him, but it also tied the program record. And then later on in the game, Logan Steenstra, he steps to the plate in the eighth inning and hits a solo home run to give Tennessee the record. And, and it's just goofy how quickly Tennessee got to this record. Uh, the, the 1998 team is the, the Tennessee team that set the record. They did so in 56 games. This Tennessee team did so in 45 games. <laughs> so 11 games fewer. Uh, 11 games remain for Tennessee on the regular season. They're guaranteed four postseason games, two in Hoover, two in the regional, and I'm, I'm sure they'll play plenty more postseason games than just four, but pretty remarkable that Tennessee sets the single-season program home run record as early as it did. 11 games fewer, and again, still 11 regular season games remaining and an entire slew of postseason games remaining as well. Uh, and here's the other thing about how impressive setting the record is this season. That 1998 team, they did so with, with bats that were much easier to hit home runs with. Uh, Tennessee is doing it in a day and age where yeah, obviously you still see a lot of home runs, but uh, they're, they're not using aluminum bats <laughs> like they used to back in the day. It, it is the era of uh, the post-BB core bats. So you know, the, the bats aren't as kind uh, to hit with as you have seen in the past, particularly with that 98 team that set the record. So impressive all the way around how Tennessee did it. Uh, I mentioned Jordan Beck getting the, the fun going against A&M. He hit his in the first inning. Kyle Booker, he hits a two-run home run in the fourth inning. Blake Burke, he hits a three-run home run in the fifth inning. And then Ethan Payne hit a two-run home run, his first career home run, and also the program record-tying home run. And then Logan Steenstra steps up to the plate and sets the new program record. The other storyline that I mentioned is that Chase Dolander returned 17 days after his elbow was struck by a line drive against Alabama. Dolander gets back on the mound, and, and he looked good. Not a whole lot of action. He threw nine pitches. Six were strikes. He and Tony Vitello said after the game that the objective was just to get him out there. Ten pitches or so. Uh, Tony was very specific and said that he wanted – Chase to go in there and get two outs and do so within 10 pitches. And that's what Chase did. Uh, again, he threw nine, uh, so he, he was able to get those two outs before the 10-pitch mark. Uh, he faced three batters. He got a line drive out to left field uh, with, with the first hitter he faced. Then he did allow a single through the right side of the infield, and, and then he bounced back with a strikeout against the final batter he faced. So competition wasn't that great. Alabama 
Alabama A&M only has eight wins on the season. So not not the greatest of competitions, but good to see Chase get out there and just those strikes. I mean, it, it was really just as simple as that for him. The velo was there. He was sitting 97 to 99 on the mound. So that that is a great sign. And I asked him after the game, hey, how, how do you feel? Is it going to be a, you know, a buildup going forward? Or are you pretty much good to go from here on out? And he admitted that he's pretty fresh, but because he did miss two starts, there's going to be somewhat of a buildup for Chase Dolander. But for the most part, he's going to be good to go. He thinks that this weekend he can give Tennessee three, four, five innings in whatever capacity that looks like, and then they'll just continue to build up from there. But all in all, two objectives were crossed, and that was to get Chase Dolander back on the mound. And not only did you get him back on the mound, but he looked good in the process. And that brings you to the big old question of, well, what happens this weekend against Kentucky? Who Who's going to start? Is this finally the weekend where somebody is going to be left out and – I don't think that's the case, and Tennessee's game notes were released right before I pressed record, and it'll be Chase Burns on Thursday in game one. It'll be Blake Tidwell in game two against the Cats, and then on Saturday, it'll be Drew Beam wrapping up the series finale. So uh, same rotation as the previous two weekends. I I wouldn't read too much into it. I I think it's still Tennessee taking it easy with Chase Dolander because they can. This is not a very good Kentucky team, and we'll get into a a quick Kentucky breakdown before we get out of here. But I I wouldn't read too much into the decisions that are made this weekend. I I don't really think that that a true decision was had to have been made uh, for this weekend. I, I think the bigger decision will be next weekend, against Georgia and and why I think that is because Blake Tidwell isn't completely off the leash yet he he is very close and I I would think that this is the the last weekend of him being on the leash Uh, Tony Vitello said following the game uh, against Alabama A&M that uh, he's not going to go out there and pitch eight innings which which tells you that uh, Tidwell is still on that leash and and then as I mentioned a moment ago Chase Dolander isn't on or isn't off that leash either. There's still somewhat of a buildup with him as well. So my gut feeling is that you'll see Chase Burns on on Thursday, game one. You'll see Drew Beam, game three in the series finale. If if they run into trouble, I I think it would be Ben Joyce or uh, Camden Sewell, Will Mabry that, that piggybacks burns or beam if they run into trouble i i guess theoretically obviously dolander could piggyback burns or beam as well i just my interpretation of the situation and and this is just me trying to uh just connect all the dots i guess you could say i i think they're going to try and piggyback dolander behind tidwell i think that's going to be the plan going in but again theoretically Burns gets in the trouble can't make it out of the the second or third inning or fourth or fifth or whatever Dolander could still come in and and pitch perfectly fine and again like he said give you three four five innings so theoretically he could pitch Thursday or Saturday in game one or game three I just think it's more likely 
that it's more of a planned type of deal on Friday night in game two where you, you have Tidwell start, you have his X amount of pitches that you're going to allow him to throw, and, and because he's not completely off of the leash, then you know that you're going to go to Dolander after Tidwell gets done pitching whatever amount that you want him to pitch. That That's how I think it'll shake out. But to, to look a, a little bit further down the road and – Uh, It's a conversation that we've had for weeks now, and it's one that we will continue to have. But in terms of next week against Georgia, when more of a decision is probably going to have to be made about who's the odd man left out, because, again, you have those four starters, Dolander, Tidwell, Beam, Burns. You only have three weekend spots. More of a decision will have to be made, and if you – and maybe I, I shouldn't even put this out there so that I don't look silly, but whatever, I'll, I'll do it anyways because that's what we do best here. Uh, I, I think Beam's going to be the odd man out, uh, at least in, in the regular season as the regular season wraps up. And I don't necessarily think that it's any wrongdoing by him. I, I'm a big Drew Beam fan. Just from me trying to uh, assess and, and read between the lines and, and connect the dots of, of comments that are made here and there by Tony Vitello and, and others is that Blake Tidwell and Chase Dolander are 1,000% going to be in the rotation. And I, I think you would also put Chase Burns into that conversation because of where the four are right now in their development as pitchers as they make their way to the big leagues. I, I think right now the highest ceiling is with Burns Dolander Tidwell Beam has had a phenomenal freshman season he's going to be a a freshman All-American he's still a a key key piece to this pitching staff he is going to be relied on heavily as a starter in the postseason but I do think that if you have to boil it down to three I do think the higher ceilings of the four guys I think the three with the high ceiling is Again, Tol or uh, Tolander, uh, Tidwell, Dolander, and Burns. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens there. I also think it would be advantageous to to give Drew Beam a week off or two weeks off, not entirely from pitching, but from starting and trying to allow him to go six, seven, eight innings into a game, just because of his history. And he didn't pitch his junior year because of COVID. He didn't pitch his senior year because of Tommy John. This has been well documented. We've talked about it. Uh, and and now he's a freshman in the SEC. So not only do you have to, to worry about the, the natural freshman wall that freshmen run into, but he, he kind of has two walls that you have to worry about him running into because he, he hasn't really pitched the last couple of years because of unfortunate circumstances. So uh, you're, you're not going to completely go away from him for two weeks, but I think bringing him out of the bullpen the last two regular season or last two weekends of the regular season wouldn't be a bad thing. I think it would be very advantageous for the team and for Beam himself just to to allow that arm to regroup and be fresh going into the postseason, which brings me to my final point on the pitching staff. And this is something that I've shared before. So if you've been following my work, then you've heard me discuss this very recently in multiple places. But 
I really think that this is all being overblown at the end of the day. And I think that because after this weekend, there's only two weekends left of where you need a a, a true rotation, of where you need three starters. And then you move into the SEC tournament where you're going to need four, five starters to, to make it through and, and win an SEC championship. You get into regional weekend, you're going to need a fourth starter. Super regional is the traditional regular season schedule two out of three. So, so that will, uh, if they make it to super regionals, a decision will have to be made there, but then you get back into Omaha and you're going to need a fourth and fifth starter. If you're going to have success and win a national championship. And at the end of the day, all four of those elite starters are going to start in the postseason because a there's spots available and B, they're good enough to do so. And I love that Tony Vitella pointed out after the game on Tuesday, If when I asked him, I said, hey, do you think that this is kind of being overblown? And, and he said it's a fair conversation to, to have, but it's also fair to also view it in that sense because uh, there's not the traditional two out of three in the postseason that you see as much during the regular season aside from Super Regional Weekend. And Tennessee, not only do they have four elite starters – but Camden Sewell has proved in the past that he can be a starter. Just go look what he did in the SEC tournament last year against Florida. And Tony Vitello said he certainly does not have an issue handing the ball over to Camden Sewell in a must-win game as a starter, not, not out of the bullpen. He said he does not mind at all to start Camden Sewell in a must-win game. And he also pointed out Xander Seacrest, that that he knows Xander will go in and fill up the strike zone. So in Tony's mind, he has six starters he can rely on. And I, I just, again, I believe it's being overblown, this conversation. It's a fun conversation to have. It's a fair conversation. But once you get into postseason, you've got to have that fourth starter, as we've illustrated so much here on the podcast. Looking at Kentucky, Kentucky is not a very good baseball team. Uh, they, they do have some talent. They they entered the season with some expectations, haven't necessarily lived up to those expectations. They've lost five SEC series in a row. They've only won one SEC series this season, and that came against Georgia earlier in the year. Funny enough, on the road against the top 25 team is the, the one – series that they've been able to pull out in conference play, but they're not very good because, A, they're horrific on defense. They are dead last in fielding percentage, and they've committed the second most errors, 24. And from the Tennessee side of things, it's been a constant conversation all year long about the stolen bases that Tennessee has given up, and Kentucky has allowed as many stolen bases as Tennessee. Tennessee and Kentucky have given up 22 stolen bases on the season, and not only is Kentucky tied with Tennessee for most stolen bases given up, Kentucky is also tied with Vanderbilt for the most steal attempts against. So teams run frequently on Kentucky, more frequently than they do on Tennessee, and they allow as many stolen bases as Tennessee. So that is never a good sign. Uh, So Tennessee... All you got to do is put pressure on their defense, and at the rate that it's gone this season for the Cats, they have folded often. So Kentucky, terrible defense. 
middle of the road pitching staff. Not bad, but but not good either. Uh, a mixed bag when you look at it from a statistical standpoint. Uh, in terms of where they rank during conference play, they've allowed the third fewest home runs allowed. They have the fourth most strikeouts, fourth fewest hits allowed. They're tied for fourth in saves. But then you look on the flip side of the, the positive and you look at the negative, and they've hit the second most batters during conference play. They've allowed the third most walks during conference play, and they've they're middle of the road in terms of runs allowed. Seventh most runs allowed with 133. So uh, I imagine Frank Anderson is going to have his own headache just even watching this Kentucky pitching staff because, boy, do they allow a lot of free passes. Third most walks, second most hit batters. No bueno. Uh, and then in terms of ERA, middle of the road, sixth in ERA, uh, 5.29 ERA. And then opponents are hitting 265 off of them, which is sixth in the SEC. The offense, they don't do a lot of good things. Uh, the, the pitching staff is their best attribute, and the pitching staff isn't all that good. Now, offensively and defensively, I, I do not think Kentucky is very good. They, they do steal a lot of bases. That That is going to be something that's interesting to watch with that Evan Russell conversation that we've had often this year and what I just mentioned from a statistical standpoint a moment ago when talking about Kentucky also allowing a lot of stolen bases. Uh, the Kentucky offense likes to steal bases in its own right, and they lead the SEC during conference play in stolen bases, 22. And Nick Mingione, the, the Kentucky head coach, that, that's been a staple of his since he's been there. In five-plus years as head coach, Kentucky has stolen 362 bases in 473 attempts, a.k.a. a success rate of 76.5%. So they they have stolen bases at a 77% clip under Nick Mingione there at Kentucky. And this year alone, they're 53 for 58. So uh, Tennessee's pitching staff, Evan Russell, going to have to be on its P's and Q's and, and be much better in the run game than they have been. The problem for Kentucky is that they don't get a lot of people on base. They're last in the SEC in walks. They're last in the SEC in home runs. They're last in runs scored. They're last in scoring or slugging percentage. They're 13th in total bases. They're second to last in RBIs. They're second to last in on-base percentage. They strike out quite a bit. Uh, their batting average is 11th in the SEC. They're hitting 245 as a team during conference play just not a very good offense they, they steal bases but that's about it and for a team that steals bases quite a bit it, it's pretty remarkable that they reach base as few times as they do and still lead the SEC during conference play in stolen bases and they've only been caught once stealing in SEC play despite the fourth of fourth most amount of attempts so uh, something to keep an eye on there and then they they don't hit into double plays all that often fewest double plays hit into this year but that's also a product of not getting anybody on base to be able to hit into a double play there were some quirky numbers I stumbled upon with Kentucky's offense if you look at their offense in SEC play in 21 games they're hitting 245 and they have 19 home runs. I mentioned that earlier. Last in the SEC in home runs. And they're hitting 
45 in SEC play. They, they just have not been good against legitimate competition. And it's not like the SEC is just a world beater this year either. I, I think it's safe to say that from top to bottom, it's a, it's a pretty down year in the SEC. And this Kentucky offense has not been able to find success. And, and it gets even quirkier when you look at some of their splits. They were awful last month in the month of April. I mentioned they hit 245 in SEC play. They hit over 300 in March, and then as they really got into SEC play, they hit 245 in 17 games last month. Just 13 homers, 148 strikeouts in the month of April as a total offense. Uh, again, they, they just are not a very good baseball team, and that's reflected in the stats pre-good competition and post-good competition uh, post getting into conference play. And here's the quirkiest stat of them all. They're terrible at night. They, they hit over 340 in day games. And at night, they hit 242. 242 at night. For whatever reason, maybe it's just one of those weird stats that, that don't mean much. And it's just a coincidence. But their their numbers, when you look at how they hit during the day and, and how they hit during the night, is night and day, pun intended. So we'll, we'll see if that factors into it. Two night games this weekend, 7 o'clock on Thursday night, 6.30 on, sat, or, uh, on, on Friday night. This Thursday, Friday, Saturday is, is really throwing me off. But, uh, again, 7 o'clock, Thursday night, 6.30, Friday night, and then 2 o'clock on Saturday. So we'll, we'll see what the Kentucky offense does at night because the numbers do not look good uh, when, when you do look at it on paper so uh, not a, a very good team in my estimation and not that you needed all that evidence to back it up all you had to know was that they've lost five consecutive SEC series and only won one of six SEC series this season uh, their their pitching staff we'll, we'll see what it looks like this weekend in their game notes they list game one and game two starters as to be announced we'll, we'll see what they do there Sean Harney, he's a redshirt senior. He's going to start on Saturday. He's 5-3 and three this season with a 2.82 ERA. But what's weird about that is he's made 11 appearances, but he's only started two games this year. So seems like he's new to the rotation. Uh, he transferred to Kentucky from UMass prior to last season and opened the year as the closer. He had six saves, and then one of the Kentucky pitchers, Mason Hazelwood, he left the rotation due to injury, and Sean Harney filled in for Mason Hazelwood and posted a 3-2 record with a 3.69 ERA uh, when he was starting. And that's probably why he has been thrust into the rotation. Kentucky dealing with some injuries. Cole Stupp, their senior, one of the, the best pitchers in the SEC, and he was their Friday night starter. He's out for the season, I believe, due to Tommy John. And then Darren Williams, who was another transfer, he's also out for the remainder of the season due to injury. Darren Williams, a transfer from Eastern Kentucky, who was having a, a really good season for the Cats. Uh, he had a 31-10 to 10 strikeout-to-walk ratio this year and, and was one of the key arms on that Kentucky staff. So uh, Mason Hazelwood, we could see him on Friday. He's 1-2 and two this season, 
5.48 ERA. He's made five starts on the season. Zach Lee, uh, another senior who could start, he's got a 6.00 ERA. Uh, just just not a whole lot that scares you or, or should keep Josh Elander or Tony Vitello up at night when examining this Kentucky starting rotation or the bullpen. They, they do have two nice arms out of the bullpen, kind of reminiscent of Auburn. Auburn had two key arms. Uh, Kentucky has two key arms as well, but I don't think Kentucky's duo is as good as Auburn's duo. Uh, the closer, Tyler Goldfoyle, he's a transfer from Lipscomb. Uh, he's their best arm out of the bullpen. 16 appearances, four saves, 1.72 ERA. Daniel Harper, he's been their setup man. He's made 18 appearances. He has one save. He's 2-1 and one with a 3.68 ERA. And then the rest of the bullpen is just frightening if you're a Kentucky fan. Uh, Ryan Hagnow, 7.17 ERA. Mason Moore, a freshman, 4.42 ERA. Wyatt Hoodpool, 5.91 ERA. Jackson Nove, 7.94 ERA. Austin Strickland, 7.53 ERA. Seth Logue, 8.24 ERA. And then Colby Frieda, he's a freshman, a 12.00 ERA. So, uh, not much that should scare this Tennessee lineup, and that should be the difference. Uh, Tennessee should sweep. To me, it's as simple as that. There are some keys this weekend. Uh, I think the, the two big ones, and this is the only way that Kentucky can beat Tennessee, is if they are able to get runners on base and they're able just to, to steal frequently against Tennessee's running game that has not been all that great this year whether it's Evan Russell not being a huge difference maker back there I think he's been terrific behind the dish with his glove but he's also not Yachty back there uh, he's not throwing guys out left and right but the, the pitching staff also has not helped Evan very slow to the plate uh, don't know how big of an emphasis that is in terms of philosophy I mean it was the same case last year same same case the year before last. It'll be similar next year. Even if Tennessee upgrades the arm and the ability to throw runners out, Tennessee's pitchers are, are still going to be slow to the plate. I just kind of think it's a, a staple under Frank Anderson. But the, the only way I see Kentucky stealing a game from Tennessee is if they are able to get runners on base and just are able to have a field day on the base paths. But I mentioned earlier, they do steal a lot of bases, but they don't get on base. <laughs> this is going to be the best pitching that they've faced all year. I just don't see a team that struggles to get on base getting on base against Chase Burns, Blake Tidwell, Chase Dolander, Drew Beam, Will Mabry, Redmond Walsh, Ben Joyce, Mark McLaughlin, so on and so forth. You, you get the idea. So uh, Tennessee will have to keep an eye on Kentucky when they do get on base, but I don't expect it to be very often so that that's really the the one and only key for me I, I think another key for Tennessee and it's a much simpler one but just put the ball in play I mean it's really as simple as that I mean this is going back to little league and, and middle school and high school baseball where your coaches were really adamant about hey just put the ball in play put pressure on the defense and, and see what happens I mean this is the case once again this weekend their defense is terrible. They're last in the SEC during conference play in fielding percentage. They commit the second most errors, and they also give up a lot of stolen bases. So 
just don't strike out a lot. And the, the good news about that is that they don't have pitchers that do strike you out a lot. So uh, Tennessee's offense should should have a field day. And it's one of the rare times this, this season or in SEC baseball in general where not sweeping would be a disappointment. But it is just a, a huge difference in, in quality of team this weekend. Depth, talent, bullpen, pitching staff, lineup, coaching. I mean, from top to bottom, Tennessee is just so, so much better than Kentucky. So uh, not, not a whole lot of keys as, as long as Tennessee shows up and, and plays the way it's been playing. I just I don't see Kentucky even winning a game this weekend, and I, I hate to put this type of pressure on Tennessee. Not not that they're basing success off of what I have to say, but uh, it would be disappointing to to not sweep this Kentucky team, especially when you've been able to sweep the likes of Ole Miss and and Vanderbilt and Florida on the road. Ole Miss and Vandy were also on the road, and uh, Alabama, Auburn. Two really good teams as well, able to take two or three from those teams. So um, just should be a pretty easy weekend at the ballpark for the Vols. I will be in attendance this weekend, as I always am. Can't wait to spend two and a half days up in Lexington. So be sure to stay locked in to VolQuest.com for plenty of coverage from up north in Lexington. We'll be back with you Sunday and Eric will be back with me on Sunday to recap the weekend and until then we hope you have a great rest of your week.